Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and we have another great interview in store for you all today. I chat with Jessica Polka. She's the executive director of ASAP Bio, an organization that's trying to achieve something close to their name. They're trying to get research out ASAP. And we get into the history of this uh, organization and her interest in preprints and the scientific publishing industry, some of its shortcomings, and also some of the progress that has happened in the last few years alone. It's an exciting conversation, and I'm very hopeful for where the space is going from leaders like Jessica. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you enjoy our content, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy this interview. So I want to, I'm really excited to get into kind of your bird's eye view of scientific publishing, where the sector is at. There's been a lot that's happened in this space, even in the last year alone. Um, And I think it's an aspect of academia or science that many are feeling the pains of its shortcomings. And what's exciting about this time in our lives is that it seems like many people, yourself included, are making headway on changing things. And you've really been a part of that uh, for many years. Um, so I want to take you back to 2015 when you first met with um, some folks around the idea for the organization you lead, ASAP Bio. And I'm hoping you can tell us how that meeting came about and what were some of the the goals of this project and the idea behind it. Absolutely. Uh, so in 2015, um, I was a postdoc um, getting engaged in a lot of different efforts to try to improve scientific research culture in different ways. Um, and uh, ASAP Bio's founder, really Ron Vale, um, was a professor um, at uh, UCSF where I did my graduate work, but I was also working with him through other organizations like ASCB, the American Society for Cell Biology and Rescuing Biomedical Research. Um, Ron recruited um, uh, a few of us who were engaged in rescuing biomedical research to help him put together a meeting on preprints. And, uh, you know, preprints at that time were very kind of newfangled, if you will, in the life sciences. Uh, BioArchive had just launched in 2013. Um, I had uh, put out a kind of very tentative preprint of a side project. Um, but, you know, my postdoc advisor was you know, really supportive and uh, actually on the advisory board of, of BioArchive. Um, so, you know, I was very much lucky to be in a supportive environment. Um, but, you know, at the time I, uh, was really interested in, in trying to find ways to improve, um, the kind of working conditions or the experience of early career researchers. And, um, you know, coming at this from the angle of thinking about the structure of the biomedical workforce, um, some of these issues that you've already mentioned about the fact that the publication culture often creates an atmosphere of hyper competition um, that you know is also reflected by the way funding is allocated. 
Um, so I was really, you know, trying to uh, find ways to address this issue. And I had been doing some work um, with organizations like Future of Research and others to try to identify ways that, um, you know, science could be more productive and uh, more collaborative. So Ron's proposal to focus a meeting on improving the use of preprints, um, you know, I, I, I think is fantastic because it identifies the fact that it's an intervention that helps individual researchers because every researcher, um, you know, myself included, I think really feels a strong pressure to get their science out there, um, to, um, demonstrate their productivity. They want to share their ideas, get feedback, get visibility. Um, and at the same time, preprints have this really incredible systemic benefit of making research more available to more people, of broadening access to research, and of ultimately accelerating the science. Um, and Ron had actually done a small study um, which he published uh, about the time to graduation um, at UCSF and found that over the past 30 years, students were taking more than a year longer to actually come out with their first, first author publication. And over the same period of time, the number of figures and um, I should say figure panels in papers had increased dramatically as well. So it's as if the bar for publication had just been increasing over time. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think that one can really determine causality from this association, but I think it's it's kind of tempting to speculate about how, um, you know, the decision to what we publish is not necessarily based on what the scientific community needs. Um, it's it's more about what is necessary to get a high impact journal publication that will enable someone to advance their career. Um, and so I think yoking the decision to publish to career evaluation by a journal at the single point in time has um, had some very corrosive effects in in uh, on what people publish and when. And allowing researchers to share without uh, worrying about evaluation um, at, at that immediate point in time, um, I think has a huge benefits. Like you know, regarding the issues we uh, were just talking about with early career researchers, I think having um, having the ability to share um, when needed um, is very liberating, both for individual scientists and it's also good for uh, the field as a whole. Yeah, and and for a bit of background for our listeners, a preprint tends to refer to a version of a scientific manuscript um, that's shared on one of these platforms that Jessica mentioned, BioArchive. Archive is another one, MedArchive, um, that allows people to view this research before it's been peer-reviewed uh, at at a journal. And so typically that process, traditionally that process takes quite a bit of time because you submit your paper to the journal, they're going to decide if it should be reviewed and then it gets sent out to reviewers. They often have to identify two to three reviewers per paper and then that process takes time and then there's a decision as to whether or not it will be published in that in that uh, journal, you know, with 
minor revisions, major revisions. And so that process can take quite a bit of time and really push out the the time to a point where other people can view the research. So in the case of my own studies in graduate school, there's a paper that still hasn't been published, um, but we have shared it on BioArchive now um, years later. And it's a you know finding that that could potentially be helpful to other people in the field of Huntington's disease research. Um, so it's so like it's so exciting kind of to think back to this point in time in 2015 when you had this meeting, when you you were, you know, working with people who were kind of recognizing this issue um, and really catalyzing the change. It, it, it feels like there was a need to amplify this idea of preprints and, and sharing it because it wasn't really being done, even though your advisor was supportive of you putting this paper out as a preprint. Um, I think probably the norm at the time was to not put out research as preprints. Can you talk about the, you know, the contrast of that period of time to today? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I think that, uh, at, at that time, the volume of preprints being posted per month to bioarchive, um, if if I'm not mistaken, was um, you know in in the low hundreds or something like that. It was a very small number relative to what it is today. Um, there's been a huge explosion in the number of people sharing preprints, um, which you know in in a sense, I think that having um, conversations among different community members, among different stakeholders certainly helped to accelerate that change. Um, but, you know, I think that those kind of conversations were happening on social media as well. Um, and uh, I, I think that there it was a, a really interesting time when n- not everyone had heard of preprints. I think now, especially post-COVID, um, many people are aware at least of what a preprint is. Um, but at that time, it was this kind of weird publishing practice that the physicists were doing. <laughs> um, and actually, I, I mentioned uh, that I was working on preprints um, not too long after uh, I started working on ASAP Bio to a colleague who is more senior. Um, and he mentioned, oh, preprints, those things that the NIH used to send you in cardboard boxes, <laughs> because apparently in the 1960s, there was a experiment called information exchange groups where NIH was actually photocopying and sharing preprints um, out as well. And that was a, is a really fascinating piece of history of a great article by Matthew Cobb, I think called the prehistory of preprints. Um, but, you know, just to, just to say that um, even though the idea was quite new to many people working in in the field at that time, um, you know, it, it's kind of amazing how short our memory is. I think a lot of um, people had this idea that preprints were suitable for f- physics for X or Y reason, like oh maybe it's because um, they you know the, the experimental work is different, or maybe it's because they work in large teams and therefore you know there's less of a threat of getting scooped. Um, when, when in fact, you know, people in our own discipline decades ago, um, had actually adopted this very physically awkward and, um, you know, impractical prior to the digital age 
practice of sharing results with one another. And actually, you know, there's a lot of, of traction behind that. Um, and really, it was, in my opinion, only the physical limitations of of like shipping large boxes of papers with no index, no search function, and also opposition from journals that shut that down. So, um, yeah, it's it's been really great to uh, really wonderful to see how um, how much the community has um, embraced preprints to the point that now, um, I believe in 2022, that there was a peak of about 10% of the volume of PubMed being posted on a preprint server in a given month. So that's certainly not as high as what we see in some disciplines in physics. Um, but at the same time, um, it's a lot of growth um, in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, it's so impressive, you know, how far we've come in a way as far as our view of preprints, the kind of uh, acceptance of them within our scientific communities. And I think, you know, my opinion is that it's, it's, for the betterment of, of science as a whole and the dissemination of knowledge in general. Um, so to, to caveat that, though, there are still many challenges that we face as, as scientists with regards to the scientific publishing system. Can you characterize like one to two of the major issues that you see right now with the space that you're hopeful we can work to overcome in, 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 let's say, the next five to 10 years? Absolutely. I think um, there's so many different opportunities for change here. Um, I you know, may not be able to, I think, pick um, you know, one or two, but I will say that one particularly exciting area is recent developments over the past year or three uh, on open access. So making publications freely available um, to anyone who wants to read them. And, and beyond that, actually enabling their reuse um, and uh, their archiving and processing and, and the ability to be interpreted um, or, or uh, transformed. So that is, is an extremely exciting thing that has been facilitated by funder policies in the U.S. and also um, in Europe with Plan S, and there's been lots of developments, um, you know, even in Latin America that have really led the way for um, decades at this point beforehand. But really, I think in the last few years, there's been a lot of progress um, for those of us, for example, in the U.S. Um, to see uh, the memo from OSTP, Office of Science Technology Policy, last year on uh, public access to federally funded research. That's a huge development. Um, and, you know, this is something that I think continues to be um, a, a, a huge issue because science um, can only progress if others are able to read and build off of what has been learned in the past. Um, I think the concerns um, now are, um, you know, perhaps shifting to ensure that the mechanisms by which this open access is achieved don't promote inequities in who is able to publish research. So I think a big conversation now is around how the business model of open access. So in a traditional subscription journal model, an author um, in the life sciences, for example, might have to pay a 
uh, article processing charge or a page fee or a cover charge, as, as they may have been called, to get their paper published. Um, but the majority of the journal's revenue is coming from subscriptions from libraries. Um, in the absence of subscriptions from libraries, um, some journals are turning to read and publish agreements where there's a so-called transformative agreement um, where the library is supporting their authors in publishing open access, um, or they're relying on article processing charges or APCs. And uh, there's been a lot of controversy as some journals have announced article processing charges of up to like $10,000, um, I believe in, in the case of nature. So, you know, this raises the question, um, how, who is able to publish science now? And, um, you know, I think that there's been mechanisms to try to alleviate some of these concerns by offering waivers, um, but they're really not sufficient to address this problem. Um, you know, I will say that these this these costs might seem outrageous, but they have been borne behind the scenes by libraries um, really up until this point. And so I think um, the research community is a bit, you know, in, in some areas having a bit of a reckoning with, is this really what it costs to publish? Does this make sense? Et cetera, et cetera. And all the questions that kind of lead on from that. Um, you know, I think a, a second issue is also related to equity, which is peer review. And is peer review um, really kind of uh, working the way that we intend it to? Or is it becoming something or, or has it become something that is focused too much on gatekeeping for a particular journal? Um, is it as constructive as it could be? Is it... Um, you know, something that it relies on a small number of people to create a judgment that um, is really not very reliable. Um, and if you look at like the inter-rater reliability between peer reviewers, it's, you know, not very strong. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's questions of how to, how to address peer review that uh, really vary quite a bit depending on what you think the most important function of peer review is. Is it to get more people involved? Is it to ensure the quality of the published research, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that this issue of cost and access and peer review and how to address it are, are two big issues that the community is grappling with today. Yeah, I want to dive a little deeper into both of those topics. So on the open access front, you mentioned um, this, this memo from the White House last year um, calling for open access of you know, government-funded research, uh, I, I believe in by 2025 is when they would like that to happen. Can you give us any insight as to how they plan to in, enforce that or, or enact that? Yeah, I, I think um, the a, a lot of the uh, implementation was, I believe, left to the individual federal research agencies. So, you know, they call on the the agencies to come up with some sort of plan. Um, and, you know, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, um, has been the first one <clears throat> of these agencies to put together a public access plan, to my knowledge. Um, but, you know, I, I think that the NIH has also had a, you know, long standing experience in making its research accessible 
But after the, its previous policy has been to make it accessible, uh, research that it is funded after 12 months. So 12 months after publication, the manuscripts appear in PubMed Central. So they either get deposited there by the author or the journal um, facilitates the deposit of the manuscript in PubMed Central after 12 month period. So, you know, in that sense, I think um, the NIH already has a repository where all of this research is going. And it's just a question now, I think, of changing the, the embargo from 12 months to zero months, which is exactly what they have proposed to do. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, th I think that it's uh, yet unclear exactly how other federal agencies will respond to this. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think I think that the way that the NIH is proposing to do it is something that they may look to in the future. Yeah. And you mentioned that they recently put out a request for information and hosted, uh, I'm going to call it a listening party, but <laughs> I'm sure there's a more formal term for it, uh, where they, they, you know, received insight from many, many stakeholders across the, the journal spectrum, as well as grad students, postdocs. And, and you took the time to, to listen to this. Um, can you share a few takeaways from, from that and what you're most hopeful for to come out of that? Right. So the NIH has put out a request for information on its draft public access plan, which outlines its response to um, the Nelson memo calling for these federal agencies to make uh, their their funded work publicly accessible. Uh, and so the NIH, I think, has been really ahead of the game a little bit because the Nelson memo also relates not only to peer-reviewed publications, but the data that supports them. And already in effect is a plan that the NIH uh, put out, I believe, in 2020 uh, for sharing data. So the uh, public access plan that the NIH has just finished requesting information on um, relates largely to scholarly publications and how it plans to implement the, the Nelson memo. So, um, you know, I think that there's a, uh, a, a few items in there about um, the mechanism by which either authors or journals can upload to PubMed Central. Um, there's a, a little bit of clarification about what, like technical things like when the, the date of publication is going to be recorded and things like that. Um, but um, what the NIH was really requesting feedback on was um, a couple different questions. The first is how to ensure equity, both in for researchers publishing their work and also for people reading the work. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think that there's um, a, a lot of ground being moved forward in, in making public access, you know, in making things accessible for people to read. Um, but just because something is free to read on the internet doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually accessible to everyone. Um, for example, there are uh, licenses that allow content to be translated into different languages. Um, and, you know, English is predominantly the language in which much science is, is published, but that excludes a large number of people in the world from reading and understanding it. So uh, I think that having content being published uh, under open licenses is something that could really enhance the accessibility 
of content and go beyond just making it free to read, um, but but actually uh, ensure that people can do things like annotate it, download it, rehost it, archive it, translate all of these things that support um, the use and dissemination of knowledge. Um, you know, the equity in in publishing relates to this issue that uh, you know we're talking about with article processing charges uh, that. Is are we now shifting away from a burden to access content to burden in publishing content or barriers to publishing content? Um, and so, ASAP Bio, uh, you know, I not only attended the listening session but also offered some of ASAP Bio's own comments on this. Which, you know, I think that preprints offer an opportunity to address this question of access um, in the sense that. They are free to um, they are free to post. They are free to read. They can be posted under open licenses, um, and um, you know for that reason they address the kind of second major question that the NIH put forth, which is how to maintain a awareness of to track to um, to stay aware of the costs and maintain reasonable costs in in this whole system. Um, you know, I think that that the burden, the potential burdens on authors of having to pay article processing charges just to get their article out there in public, um, is something that really could affect, um, you know, in in the U.S. researchers who don't have grant funding, and and of course they, if it, this affects researchers um, across the world, um, especially in settings um, where there's. Uh, in lower middle income countries too. So, you know, preprints as a way to archive a copy of a manuscript or really as, you know, many people um, I think use preprints just to publish their work without necessarily thinking of it as going onto a journal. For example, there was a really interesting study um, that came out uh, a few months ago called Preprint Match, which was a algorithm for matching preprints to publish papers with better accuracy than some of the other existing mechanisms. And they found that in low and middle income countries, fewer people are taking their preprints and publishing it in a journal afterwards. It's more common to just have a preprint and let the preprint be the preprint. Um, I think there's different interpretations for what this means. Um, but to me, it speaks to the fact that preprints are a way to make research accessible for everyone. Um, at at uh, at very very low cost in comparison to the entire journal publishing system, at no cost to readers, no cost to authors, um, and you know these costs are borne by institutions and funders. So yeah, I think the NIH has an opportunity here. They already recognize preprints as a um, as a way to cite research. So preprints can be cited anywhere journal articles are cited in grant applications and reports. And um, you know, I think viewing them as a as a lens to fulfill this public access mandate, I think, is also something that can be very important. Um, the Nelson Memo specifically talks about peer reviewed research, and I think it's really exciting that more and more preprints now are actually getting peer reviewed. Um, they are, as you mentioned, something that um, you know doesn't get peer reviewed before posting. But um, actually, what that means is just that now the peer review can happen in the open. Um, by services like um, Review Commons, Peer Community In, um, and the journal eLife has now moved to this model, which is focusing more on uh, review of preprints and less on an accept-reject decision.
Yeah, it's uh, it's something I wanted to ask you about because that, you know, the eLife announcement around um, publishing reviews and preprints and and correct me if I'm not characterizing this correctly, um, because my experience with eLife has been as a reviewer, you know, as someone who's submitted there and 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 hasn't necessarily published there, um, but they're moving towards a kind of more open publishing model where if someone submits their research there, it can go out for review. And even if it's rejected from traditional publication, uh, it will be shared as a preprint. Can you, can you talk about why that was such a um, explosive announcement within the scientific community? Because it just felt like Twitter went crazy for a little <laughs> while there after that came out. And like yeah. as someone who's more on the industry side, uh, it would just be awesome to like hear your perspective on that announcement. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's even more radical um, than publishing the reviews of preprints because, um, you know, as, as far as I know, I think they had been doing that actually for uh, they've changed. They've made several different experimental decisions and changes over um, the last few years, um, but most recently, what they have decided to do, um, in my understanding, is to completely eliminate accept reject decisions to the journal after peer review. So, if your paper gets sent out for review, um, uh, there's it will essentially be published. On uh, on the journal website, and I think they they may have some exceptions for special circumstances, um, but it will be published uh, on the journal website along with the reviews. So it will be an eLife paper. The citation will say, you know, your title, eLife, um, and uh, when you go there, you will see the reviews, and not only the reviews, but also an editor summary, which provides a little kind of um, assessment of the paper. And importantly, using controlled vocabulary describes the kind of the rigor of the findings and also the significance of the findings. So they have this little um, kind of chart that explains like what the different terms mean, um, you know, where, you know, ranking from things like the, and I, I won't be able to recall the exact terms, but ranking from, um, you know, findings that are perhaps not very solid to things that are extremely rigorous and from significance that might be of specialized interest to people in a field to something that is like landmark and very, very important. Um, the author then can decide to respond to the reviews um, and receive, put up a, a revised version. Uh, and I, I believe they will also, um, you know, there's a potential for revision and things like that. But the author makes a decision of when the work gets archived in Pub, PubMed Central. So um, they've kind of taken this journal publishing process and blown it up a little bit in the sense that previously, if something is published by a journal, it also means that it's endorsed by a journal. And now what they're saying is published in this journal means that it's been evaluated in the journal. And you can't just look at the name of the journal to determine what it means that, that it's been published there. You have to actually look at these reviews or this editorial summary and understand that they're all the kind of nuances and gradients um, of, of this editorial decision. 
So, so there is, of course, still a decision as to whether or not to send the paper out for review or not. Um, and you know, part of the criticism that has, um, you know, this model has come under is like, oh, well, there's still there's still some gatekeeping here because you're deciding what to send out for a reviewer or not. Well, in the current environment, um, peer review is a very precious resource where editors, I don't know the statistics of eLife, but you know, at many journals, um, editors need to send the paper out to a dozen or more, sometimes many more um, reviewers in order to secure two or three that you mentioned as being kind of necessary to get this review done. So, you know, I, you know, from that kind of philosophical standpoint, um, the decision to send an article, a paper out to review needs to be um, made in the context of understanding whether people are going to be willing to perform that review. Um, you know, I think that the the community has had a really, really um, uh, strong reaction to this because, to my knowledge, this is the first time um, a journal that has this like really established reputation does something to um, upend the system and to really powerfully um, disrupt the system in a way. So there's been other other great experiments. I mean, F1000 Research is this publishing platform where, you know, you the paper gets posted as soon as you submit to the platform. Um, and, you know, in many ways, it's like a preprint. Reviews get added on top of that. And then if the reviewers agree, the paper can get archived in PubMed Central. Um, so there's, I think there's a lot of similarities between these different models. But what really sets us apart is that eLife has functioned so much like a traditional journal up until now. Um, I think a lot of the reaction is this idea that scientists base prestige, reputation, trust in the brand name of the journal. And then when you go and disrupt deliberately, you know, with the intention as as I understand them of these eLife editors to like actually break free of the journal title as the indicator of quality. um, That is, I think, been very, very kind of shocking. Um, I've seen some Twitter polls where, you know, my my overall impression is that many people are, are quite supportive of this, but there's also been um, vocal critics. I think that when the first, um, when we start to get more and more information from authors as to how this is going to play out, my hope is that, you know, we continue having a nuanced conversation about this. Um, because ultimately, I think this is the direction that we need um, assessment to move in away from this like simplistic judgment, uh, outsourcing assessment to a journal editor. Um, to at a single point in time make a decision about the quality of a paper based on limited information, um, it, because that trait has so many, I think, negative consequences for individual researchers. It distorts how people write their papers. It distorts um, the kind of experiments that people do. So, you know, in I, I would say that moving away from that. Um, is a really courageous move on Elif's part, and I think it's a move uh, in the right direction. Yeah, the way you characterized it really helped fortify for me why this was such a shocking move. I mean, because even the history of Elif alone, like um, the you know building up this journal um, where 
you know, at least in my field, people were genuinely, you know, impressed by the research coming out of eLife. It was um, considered to be a really good uh, publication to go to if you if you got in there. It was, you know, a, a good sign on your your CV um, to take something that you know took a lot of time to build up and and have that type of reputation and then to kind of turn things on its head it really is courageous to me that that the leaders of this organization were willing to do that and like you know make such a statement for the field um and shake things up and i think what's impressive to me about it is that not everybody has that in them and not every company or organization has that in them um and I, I would say that's they're few and far between, right? Like uh, the willingness to um, change things uh, takes a lot of courage. And I actually want to segue into your own career because you have a really impressive uh, academic career. Um, you, you know, during your postdoc, you had a, a Jane Coffin Childs Fellowship, which is one of the most prestigious um, postdoc fellowships. Um, you know, you were in an HHMI lab. You you made some uh, exciting discoveries, um, but you clearly had a a drive to move into the field of changing science as a whole. And I'm curious if you always had that kind of revolutionary spirit. And um, I'm wondering if you can talk about the the decision to move into a leadership position with ASAP Bio and what it was like to make that decision. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's something that um, is not something that I expected to do when I set out to go to grad school. Um, in my undergraduate career, I had been engaged in some like student advocacy organizations. And so, you know, I think I've always been drawn to the idea of trying to make some constructive social change. Um, I think I went into grad school with the idea of devoting myself, um, you know, to science and making that change and making discoveries, um, and I, you know, remain, um, you know, very much in love with biology and, and I think have uh, had such a, a wonderful time, like at the bench doing science. Um, but as I move forward in my career, I kind of, some experiences accumulated that showed me that perhaps the overall environment that we have created for doing science is not really fit for purpose, in my opinion. Um, I had every single paper that I've been on, um, or every single paper I've been like a lead author on, first author, um, I felt like we were under competition. We needed to get a paper out, um, you know, get it out to avoid being scooped, um, which, you know, if you step back, you know, wait a minute, aren't we all trying to figure out <laughs> how biology works? Like, isn't that the point of this rather than trying to protect some individual priority claim um, that, you know, for very pragmatic reasons to maintain the ability to get funding, to secure, a, you know, fellowships, jobs, whatever. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on um, 
competition and being competitive. And I think a big part of that is due to the way that the biomedical research enterprise is structured. It's structured um, with the majority of academic labor being performed by trainees, um, you know, where the, you know, I think the, there's some notion that they're being trained for, to do science. And of course, a thriving um, biomedical research enterprise outside of academia. Um, But it does create, I think, this environment in in which many people are, um, you know, really struggling and, you know, become, I think, a bit career-minded or career-focused. Um, you know, I, I think I, I had this experience where I was, uh, during my postdoc getting interested in, in, in organizing postdocs together to kind of talk about some of these issues. And as part of that was at a meeting, um, I believe faster cures, which is about accelerating discovery and, and biomedical cures. And, um, I was in the session and somebody asked a, a question, which is, you know, how can we, support early career researchers in because you know they're the ones who are really making these discoveries to advance human health um and you know hearing that question was um really kind of a, a wake-up call to me because you know actually that same day I'd been dealing with the fact that my paper had been rejected from a journal and I was going to have to rephrase the paper rewrite the paper for this different audience my what I had been thinking about and worrying about was not finding cures that help people, right? It was how do I get my paper published? Like fair, focused on these kind of proximal goals that aren't necessarily related to the common good. And I felt that by, you know, I I think you know this moment along with many others really cemented my desire to do something that could be constructive for changing science uh, for the better, changing the culture in which people are are doing science for the better. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, um, I think working on preprints and, and really, you know, it is so refreshing, I think, as a researcher to be like, I'm just putting my paper out there. I can share it. I can send it to anyone. I can, you know, people can reference it. They can cite it if they want. This is, you know, I, people can talk to me about it. it. It's very refreshing to get back to this, like, basic need in science, which is communicating directly to other people. I think that having, this is something that that researchers do at meetings when they give a poster, they give a talk, when they are in, you know, visiting one another at different institutions. Um, you know, there there's a, being able to have this kind of direct communication um, that is decoupled from evaluation and from, from this concept of judgment um, and gatekeeping, which is so associated with peer review at journals, um, is you know was incredibly refreshing, and um, I felt that if I could, it would be um, a huge honor to be able to work towards making that available to more people and making that um, something that uh, is more a part of the, the norms um, in biomedical research. Um, I think that taking the decision to actually um, go uh, work on ASAP Bio full time rather than as a side project was something that um, I I think that came with a lot of um, soul searching in a sense because I'd really built up this identity of myself as a researcher. Um, 
you know, I kind of um, maintained a uh, visiting appointment during my postdoc for a while. And, you know, I, I think I just felt a little bit hesitant about abandoning this, you know, research because I, I do, I do love it. Um, but in the end, um, it's been um, amazing. And I feel really, really fortunate to have the opportunity to devote uh, myself to this completely. Can you share um, any advice you would have for others who are perhaps in a similar boat as far as they've been going down this academic track? They um, have, you know, devoted a lot of time and energy to doing the traditional scientific publishing game and are perhaps facing this type of decision in their career? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a um, the the question that I think people really need to to ask themselves are you know partially like what kind of of impact do you do you want to have and is that impact through making this environment um, I think more conducive for other researchers, which I think could potentially you know work at a larger scale. Um, do you want to be engaged in the research itself, which is so beautiful and rewarding and wonderful? Um, you know, I think that it's possible to probably do both. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, there's, it, it's often, um, you know, it, many people I think are, there's, there's a lot of demands, especially on early career faculty members. Um, you know, I, I think that there's, it's, it's difficult to devote oneself fully <laughs> to two full-time jobs. Right. Um, so I, I think that um, as far as making the decision, you know, that is something that um, probably the, the only way to understand uh, for yourself would probably be to, to get involved in these projects on the side to be vocal, um, you know, at the time that I was a postdoc, Twitter was a, played a huge role in my life, really finding other people that were like-minded to talk to, to begin having a conversation and having a voice to develop opinions and thoughts and, you know, if, uh, questions about these issues. Being vocal, um, I think, you know, talking with other postdocs, but also other people um, outside of the the kind of your department, I think is really important. Um, for people who are thinking of moving into a space that is more relating to open science, um, there's a few different options available. Um, for example, eLife has a great early career um, outreach program where they have ambassadors. Um, at ASAP Bio, we have a fellows program where people can join for about eight months. Um, we have, you know, kind of a program of educating people about preprints, but also supporting them and doing some work on projects like um, crowd review, like, you know, creating resources uh, as well. So I think that there are, um, you know, several of these different um, opportunities for people to try out um, you know, this kind of way, way of thinking. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, uh, that really that, that having these kind of conversations and beginning to do so early um, is, is really great for early career researchers. I think everybody should be engaged regardless of whether they want to, you know, move away from academia or move into a different direction. Um, 
in some of the broader implications of of science or in thinking about how how science works. Um, you know, it's I I think so important for whether or not you're staying in academia or not to really have a critical eye on how academia is working, how the scientific research enterprise is working, and also to have this attitude that you are responsible, you are capable and responsible for making this change. You know, it's not like there's, um, you know, I think it's very tempting to say, oh, well, NIH should change this policy or, you know, um, my, you know, the department or the university should do X or Y. Um, You know, to some extent, there's a lot of potential for movements to rise from the bottom up. And I think preprints are an example of that, where it was from people posting preprints, being vocal about them, talking about them, um, you know, in those days, like largely on Twitter, but um, also in their in their departments, um, you know, communicating to editors, um, really supporting um, the desire that also I think came from top down at, at different funding agencies and journals. Um, so there's, I, I think the whole preprint movement has demonstrated that um, it's possible for fundamental assumptions about the way we do science to change. Um, and uh, you know, I think that it's an example of the fact that in order to make that happen, people need to be vocal and they need to talk to one another and take responsibility that they can be a part of whatever it is they want to see. I'm glad you mentioned Twitter because uh, it's another aspect of our scientific ecosystem that I've been, you know, enjoying over the years as a way of connecting with people. We actually really, um, we just had a, a call with, um, a group that runs a publication, a well-known, you know, journal that is interested in implementing some AI tools. And um, that came about just as, you know, a result of a Twitter conversation. Um, I noticed you also have a Mastodon account. So as someone who hasn't been on Mastodon yet, and maybe that puts me in some kind of bucket, I'm not sure. But um, I was wondering if you could talk about what that space has been like, you know, different or similar to to Twitter um and um just kind of like if if you've explored any other online communities um to advance you know the themes that ASAP bio is pursuing it's a great question I think that I found Mastodon to be much more cozy in the sense that the people drawn to Mastodon I think are um like myself, sympathetic to this idea that maybe there's something powerful and having an open source tool that is decentralized, that um, you know, that that is free, that enables um, kind of community ownership of a social network um, that functions a little bit more like public infrastructure rather than a um, money generating. Um, advertising tool. <laughs> um, so I do think that the people who are drawn there, um, and I've, I've heard a lot of val- very valid criticism of Mastodon too, that it's confusing. What server are you signing up for? Um, you know, that it's not as polished as as Twitter. And, you know, for that reason, I found that, um, you know, the my network on Mastodon is a lot smaller than it is on Twitter. I think about a tenth the size 
but it is more active. So per you know, per follower or whatever, I feel like I'm having more um, engagements, more conversations, et cetera, which is great. But I recognize that it's also, it's a bubble, even more than Twitter is a bubble. And I think it's, you know, something that um, is easy to forget that not everyone is on Twitter. Um, not, um, you know, Twitter is, you know, is not necessarily available in all regions. It's not something that, um, reaches everyone or that everybody feels that they can participate in for one reason or another. Um, you know, certainly um, Twitter, I think, has become a much more politically charged space. Um, you know, I, I would say that it's been discourse in general, um, I think, is is becoming much more politicized. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think that there, it's great that there, there are some alternatives that, um, I think people are moving to. I, I, I see a lot of people creating their own newsletters, almost going back to the blogging type ecosystem that, uh, existed, uh, prior to kind of some of these large social networks. Um, I'm optimistic about Macedon. I, I think that there's going to be some, hopefully, um, you know, th- uh, a little bit of um, question as to whether they should be recommending a, a server for people to join. I think it's a great idea. Anything to kind of help people get on board is is a good thing. Um, you know, ASAP Bio, we have a Slack channel as well for conversations. Um, but um, I think Twitter still main, is still remains like a very important place for us to be having conversations. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think it's it's really tricky given um, all of the changes. And um, yeah, I, I, I would love to see um, more movement to Macedon overall. Awesome. That that really gives me a good perspective. And I think I'll I'll go check out Macedon <laughs> soon. Um, well, this this has been great. I want to be cognizant of your time um, and maybe just just wrap up. Um, with one more question for researchers out there who are, you know, actively publishing, um, where can they go to learn more about equity and research? Uh, for instance, the, the fees you were mentioning as far as the APCs, is there going to be anything from the NIH or, um, the government side that's going to help researchers navigate that system coming up? Um, and any kind of resources you would point them to to learn more about what's happening in the space of scientific publishing as a whole? That is a great question. Um, I think that in terms of cost transparency, um, Coalition S has created a tool for monitoring journal. Um, I, I think attributes of journals, um, which I, th- I think um, should be available at this time, um, other resources in terms of um, uh, for people to be aware of and to look into are Spark, which is a North American organization uh, focusing on open access. Um, and I also encourage people to be aware of organizations like Cielo, which is a Latin American organization that has been publishing um, these free to read um, uh, and I believe free to also publish in journals uh, for for quite some time. Um, and they've had a, a really, really great success with um, a kind of implementing a model at scale 
of that focuses on more community-focused publishing, that is something that I would love to see um, uh, elsewhere in in different languages and, and around the world, too. And I actually have one more question that's more of a nitty-gritty technical question for you as someone who has like a view, bird's-eye view of this space, of licenses in general. Um, one of the the things I've been uh, contemplating is our need to um, format scientific literature in such a way that we can explore it, you know, using things like large language models. And um, that's something that's actually challenging to do depending on the license structure of a paper. So even if there's a company that wants to go out and, and format all of this literature, um, there will be like a subsect of it that they can't necessarily legally uh, format, like you mentioned with the translation issue. Um, do you have any ideas as far as how we as a society, as like a global community of humans could, um, you know, document our body of literature in such a way that we can really like navigate it and 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 put it to to full use as far as like achieving more scientific progress i love the point that you're making here um, i think there's been too much science out there for any human to read for like centuries and centuries and um the it, the issue is only getting more and more significant the more science is put out there the more data is being crammed into every individual publication. That's not a bad thing. That's you know a good thing to have more information out there. But they, you know, the question that you're asking, I, I believe, you know, how can we make the scientific literature accessible to machines is so important for uh, not only being able to make sense of the literature as we move forward, but also I think has such profound implications for actually assessing the novelty, the rigor. Um, you know, the concept of precedence and all these things moving forward. Um, and, you know, I um, certainly have been, you know, really enamored with the idea of making a knowledge graph from all of, of scientific literature. And it really seems like there's an opportunity now more than ever uh, for this to be within reach. Um, I think that this issue of machine accessibility is something that, you know, there's, there's of course like machine readability, which I feel like is becoming less and less of a, a concern um, with a lot of the literature being locked in PDFs that can be difficult to parse. But, but, you know, ultimately the, the problem is really about licensing. I think that one thing that is positive is that bioarchive uh, the licenses all of its content, regardless of the the license that authors choose to apply, as being available for text and data mining. And you know, I know that that is something that can um, be very helpful depending on what is considered like fair use in various jurisdictions. Um, I I think that there's an opportunity for funders and also. Um, infrastructure like preprint servers to actually encourage or require creative commons attribution licenses so for example i believe it is the largest um by volume monthly volume preprint server research square um has a a uh excuse me in, in biomedical sciences it has a requirement for uh, creative commons attributions licenses and um i have not yet heard any 
uh, problems that have arisen by this. I think that an individual researcher, it's very, I think, um, consistent with um, the fact that you've put in so much effort into your paper. When you're presented with a choice of licenses, when you license your preprint uh, or your paper, I think there's a um, you know competing desires, one to make it as useful as possible to the world, but also maybe a concern that um, it might be you know used in a way that you don't like or a journal doesn't like or something of that nature. So I think that um, you know the NIH has already um, recommended, uh, open licenses, um, in you know, in a kind of more soft or informal way, and I think it for for preprints, and I think it would be really constructive to see more support for Creative Commons attribution um, licenses uh, at these different levels. Um, that would enable access for people um, right now and and down the road. I think it would kind of help build this type of future that you're envisioning as well. Love that. And and I think it's great um, education for folks who, who might not even pay attention or be aware of the types of licenses that are out there. And, um, you know, I think you've given us a chance to explore this space from the unique perspective that you have with ASAP Bio and all of the incredible work you've done there and elsewhere. Um, and I, I'm really appreciative to learn about uh, how far we've come with regards to preprints, and I'm excited by the efforts to crowdsource reviews. So really encourage folks to check out ASAP Bio and all of the work they're doing in that regard, because I do think peer review adds something to the process of scientific publish publication. I'm not someone who thinks that we should throw out peer review or or ignore it, and I, I know for myself and and my work, I've um, benefited from having quality peer reviews, um, and it's made my work better. And I think it's something we should um, hopefully uphold and find a way to maintain as the precious resource that that you uh, described it as. Um, so I just want to thank you for. All the work you've done and, and taking the time to share your insights with our listeners today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. It's been fun. That wraps up my interview with Jessica Polka from ASAP Bio. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Lady Scientist Podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to the show and leave us a comment. Let us know what you think about this episode. We love hearing from our listeners. Really appreciate the support. It helps, helps me to keep going. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, I recommend you check out the episode I did with Christine Cuchinota. She's a postdoc at the Fred Hutch. She studies gene regulation and she gives some her perspectives on scientific publishing. So I, I hope you enjoy that episode as well. And thanks so much for listening to Lady Scientist Podcast.